Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this afternoon's briefing. What if the water camp stopped tribal resilience plans in an age of sea level rise? My name is Carol Werner. I'm the executive director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. We thought this was a very appropriate topic, given especially that it is Earth Day week and that we had the opportunity to have people in town this week also uh, who are telling their story, talking to people in different communities in Philadelphia and New York as well, to really look at some of the issues that are happening with regard to indigenous people and to particularly tell the story of a particular tribe in Louisiana. Now, this whole thing is part of, obviously, a much larger picture that we are seeing here in the United States and certainly locally. And as we said, this is the second in a briefing series that we have held with regard to recommendations coming out of the White House Task Force on climate resilience and adaptation from perspectives of state, local, and tribal nations. So today we are going to take a particular look at what this means for tribal nations and in terms of looking particularly at the situation confronting uh, a very uh, charismatic and important leader and great connector among uh, tribal nations in terms of Chief Albert McCain, who is unfortunately not able to be here, but we will see him in the film that we are soon to see because there is uh, illness in his family. So not able to join us today, but he is the chief of the uh, band of Al Dijon Charles of, uh, of the Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw Nation, and is, of course, in Louisiana where they are watching in terms of their isle, their island in terms of the bayou, literally disappearing before their eyes after having been there for generations. But what they are doing is another very, very interesting story. So we are first going to start to hear this story um, by taking a look at a film that has been made, and we're going to just see a little clip of that. And for that, I'd like to just introduce the filmmaker Rebecca Ferris to introduce this. Thank you so much for having us here. Um, really appreciate the EESI um, for organizing this. Uh, so the film is called Can't Stop the Water, and uh, my husband and I made it together while we were living in Louisiana and deeply concerned about coastal erosion and sea level rise um, for many, many reasons. We should all be concerned because of just the environmental impacts on wildlife and habitat and the economic uh, risks it poses to the port, Mississippi River port, and the economic impacts it will have on that, but also, most importantly, the human impacts. Um, so this film is about a community that's dealing, they're really on the front lines of this coastal erosion and sea level rise. Um, they are planning on relocating because they have no choice. Um, so this is just a five-minute clip that will show you, introduce you to the chief of the tribe. You'll also get a sense of a little bit of the family life that um, is becoming more and more difficult to sustain on the island, and then also the uh, plan for you know solution to uh, 
preserving the community and keeping them together. So I will let the clips speak for themselves and then the experts take over. Thank you.
um, as well as specifically what you'll hear about today, the relocation plan and strategies for renewable, energy-driven, sustainable community um, in their community-led relocation actions. Um, and so to start us off, I'm going to ask um, JR to introduce himself a bit, tell you about his story of growing up on the aisle and um, what's now happening with the community. Todd, Todd comes up. 
tremendously expensive underpaid. Some communities up there have been working on this 15, 20 years. In the Bayou, this community has been working on it for at least 15 years. And they are likely to be the first in the lower 48, in the mainland, the lower 48, as a community to take this problem as a, as a nation, as a group, and look to go there. JR just said he personally had to go there. Most of the evacuations that come with hurricanes and storm surges, it's individuals go someplace, refugees, not nervous and back. But it's not consciously, deliberately moving as a community. And that's what this community, this tribe is doing. And they're not new to it. They moved as a community, as a tribe, in the 1830s. From Florida, the Seminole area, everybody's moved along the trail of tears and didn't want any part as a, as a marine-based, uh, fishing-based culture. You really don't want to be in Oklahoma for that kind of, that kind of uh, culture. So they took a turn, consciously, as a group, found themselves someplace on an island back right after Lewis and Clark had come through the Louisiana Purchase and set that up, and have been there for the last 200 years. Now, once again, without federal recognition as an American Indian tribe, they're state-recognized, but they have been behaving as a community, as a tribe, for over 200 years, and now they're called upon again to do that. And in so doing, they're trying to get the best of the 21st century expertise, advice, looking at how do you rebuild or maintain a marine economy when you move north, maybe north of Highway 10 in Louisiana. How do you keep that orientation going? And these folks have been, we're meeting today on the fifth anniversary of BP, BP Horizon. Still, we're not here today to look back. We're here today to look 100 years forward, seven generations forward, to see how this community can continue viable, and be maintaining their culture, maintaining a life way and values for their young people. So we're looking at what are the renewable energy opportunities maybe for building new housing development or energy efficient homes? What kind of work can we do around that? We've talked about uh, jobs on the mainland that are associated with the devastation that more frequent and more intense storms are likely to bring. What if this community got engaged in you know, tree limb removal after the storm and landfilled all of that back out on the islands, back out in the bayous, start really being very proactive in an environmental kind of way as well? They are facing issues when the sea level rises or the land falls as a, another popular notion has it. All the extraction of oil and gas from that gulf has caused the land to sink while at the same time, the sea level is rising. So they're getting hit with both ends of that very dramatic story and trying to make the best of it. They're looking at maybe if you could collect derelict hulls and use them as incubators for marine life to give those small critters next year, a month, a couple of weeks, extra time to grow, get strong, deal with predation, and repopulate, revegetate, rejuvenize those waters. Looking at technology of 
putting mushroom, uh, one of mushrooms in to detoxify the, the petroleum pollution that they're dealing with. Finding ways of keeping that habitat being good to it, the same way that habitat's been good to them in the last 200 years. So all of this is what's in play. And I just wanted to put that out there so that you can see this in that larger indigenous picture of how communities are looking to address that. We don't see that a lot throughout the rest of the country, but these guys are not going to be climate refugees. These folks are, are scouts, are indigenous scouts, for a new way in the 21st century to be able to thrive with culture and values and dignity intact. Thank you, Bob, for that. And yeah, you know, Bob mentioned you know, it's really a conglomeration of factors that's happening here. Um, you know, we do acknowledge it's the fifth anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon disaster, but really the disaster we're talking about here is a continuous, immense amount of land loss that is occurring in Louisiana. Um, land that was supposed to be lost 20 years from now was lost 10 years ago. The U.S. Geological Survey, if you look at a map, it's already outdated by the time they drew it. Um, you cannot keep up with it. And so this is happening to many communities across uh, coastal Louisiana, across the Gulf, as well as other parts of the country. Um, Chief Albert's community, as Bob said, being one of the few that has really taken a proactive approach um, and coming up with their own solutions. Um, they've been doing so for 15 years. Um, they've been cut out of... Um, of hurricane protection systems and so have really looked at their own initiatives and what they can do together as a community, as a tribe, and make sure they do it with dignity and they do it to maintain their cultural sovereignty and heritage as they move forward. And so just to highlight a few things as Chief Albert and the Tribal Council and other members of the tribe um, has been working over the last two decades, um, they've been working at this from really the local up to the international level. They've met, as you can see, with uh, the United Nations at the United Nations Indigenous Forum, spoke with the United Nations Rapporteur for Human Rights. Um, they've talked with you know, across agencies, the EPA, to NOAA, um, working at the local level with the parish equivalent to a county um, level and across uh, many NGOs and a lot of uh, universities as well. Um, they've also uh, created a lot of partnerships and formed a lot of viable supporters along the way. Um, and by doing this and by forming these various partnerships um, with academic institutions, with agencies, what they've done um, also is partnering together with these communities to write a number of grant proposals um, to really put together you know, a relocation plan. That's a big, broad spectrum. You have a lot of components there. Right? It's not just about building houses and moving people into them. This is about bringing an entire community back together to maintain social networks, to reinvigorate the culture, and how do you do that with, with dignity in place and maintaining their rights? And so they've pieced together many different components and looked at it, you know, to microcosm scope, what is it that we need to do to make sure all these pieces come together? So as you can see, um, they're looking at many different angles, reaching out across the table to a lot of different um, agencies, supporters, advocates, um, working with them to look at the different components that are necessary to move forward. Um, and in doing this, they've also been heavily engaged. Um, Chief Albert's tribe is one of the ones who's really 
been a connector to where we are today in this conversation. Um, they were part of an initiative that put forward a recommendation to, as uh, Carol mentioned, state, local, tribal leaders, task force on, on climate preparedness and resilience. Because of Chief Albert's words and what his community is doing, a recommendation went to the task force talking directly about climate migration. Um, and there are conversations going on last week on the Hill, this week, and I believe next week as well, directly related to these recommendations. Um, this was also put forward in the bicameral task force report in 2013. Um, so this is happening across the board, and Chief Albert and his tribe has been really one of the main voices coming through that. So you often, you know, I know a lot of folks in this room see those reports, see the outcomes, um, these are the folks and the voices behind why it's gotten to that point. Um, so just a little bit of a broader scope as to what they've been doing to connect this for the rest of the country as well and for all the communities that are facing these issues. Um, but obviously there's a lot that needs to be done but between today and when eventually we do have um, a legislative action. So really what Chief Albert's community is looking at doing is being an exemplar model, a teaching community that says, we're ready to do this now. We have a plan in place, reaching across for support, for partnerships, let us engage together so we can also learn how this process works. Right? This is something, relocation, if you decide when that water comes, it's too late to make that decision. That water's on you, as JR mentioned. And so one of the key things, like Chief Albert is doing and some other communities across the country, is saying we need that plan in place and we need to act now because once that water comes, it's too late, we're scattered, and our culture's been lost. And to really maintain that viability, so he's looking for folks to partner with them, really, at this moment, to say, what can we do now, today, to work with us, support us in this effort, but not just for the community, for agencies, for their partners, to say, how can we learn about these different processes? Because this is a very long process to make happen. And so looking at what, who you work with, what are your components, how do you feed into this process, and what could be learned for other communities facing this, these issues so we can do it in an efficient, respectful manner. Um, and if JR wants to speak at all to some of um, really, you know, the, what the community um, urgency right now. What is the size of the population? Um, the tribe has about 650 members total. Um, but, and actually, I'll give a plug for the film. It talks, if you see the whole film, it talks uh, more about the specific populations. But, for example, on the island, um, there was about, two, up to two, in 2002, there was about 325 people, about 78 homes. Um, 2002, you had Hurricane Lily. 2005, you have um, Katrina, Rita. 2008, you have Gustav Ike. Then you have Lee. Then you have Isaac. Today, there's 20, about 25 homes. Um, so even just in the last 10 years, you've lost two-thirds of the people um, that were there as recent as 2002. Earlier about the community. We kind of keep the community there. 
south of New Orleans having to retreat and relocate and move. What does that mean for New Orleans? What are they, what if anything, are they doing there? So sort of think about preserving some of that, what, what used to be called the shock absorber for smart South So um, the Louisiana's Coastal Protection Restoration Authority. Um, they do have a, mas a master plan, a coastal master plan, um, looking ahead to 2050. And if you look at that coastal master plan, basically that is the outline for all of the restoration efforts that'll be taking place in the state, both um, proposed and being ongoing right now. Um, if you look at the maps of that plan, it shows that by 2050, the aisle will be completely gone if there's no restoration activities south of it. Um, and at the current rate of land loss, coastal Louisiana is, lose, is, losing great, is losing greater amount of land at a rate faster than anywhere else in the world um, in combination of rising sea levels along with the subsidence. So you have the greatest rate of relative sea level rise worldwide. One so, and a half football fields an hour. So one can, yeah, as we saw on the maps here, you can see even that land loss rate from 1940 until today. Um, and so one of the issues you can imagine then that this is going to happen much sooner than 2050. And if you look at that map, there is a distinct red line that shows you where the restoration efforts are going to save and what's not going to be saved. Ile de Jean Charles is south of that line. It's one of the only places south of that line. It was originally north of that. It was originally part of that. Um, it was deemed not worth saving. And so it's now south of that line. So there are restoration activities going on. Um, however, when those decisions were made, they were they, the CPRA spoke with oil and gas. They spoke with big aquaculture industry. That's, they spoke with big navigation. They did not consult communities. There were public hearings held after the master plan was drafted. Um, so yes, there is an enormous amount of activity going on um, that is not going to help communities like the other Jean Charles. Um, so that is one, yeah. So there is some things going on south of there, um, but the other Jean Charles is not included in that plan. So Julie or Bob or JR, so because that has been specifically excluded from these restoration plans, what does this state say then in terms of what's, what's the status as far as looking for land relocation possibilities? What's, what's happening on that front? Well, Chief has been looking at, the Chief has been looking into different properties and uh, he's got a plan. He's got a plan. He's just he's a funding to go along with the plan. Uh, yeah, he's got a master plan of relocate the group, put them all together, uh, bring houses in, uh, do solar panels and all that energy uh, efficiency of wants to do all the houses the same way. But he does have a plan in place. He just needs to help to get it going. Yeah, and just to um, and add to that, one issue is there 
there is there are options for individual buyouts and relocation, but that's what's been happening. Like people, you know, like Jr. said, you other family members have had to relocate individually. What Chief Albert and Neil John Charles is about is community. Right. So there is an individual option, and what that does is further t- tear, tear the community apart. apart. Right. And so this is about bringing, keeping that community together and bringing back the people who have already been forced to relocate, bringing them back into that cohesive unit to really maintain their cultural sovereignty as they move forward. Well, I was just curious about the interaction in terms of the state with response to this whole plan and everything, because as Bob was also saying, as you look at Alaska Native villages as well, that there are whole communities that are going to need to relocate. And, and in terms of looking at this as an exemplar, how hopefully this, what the plans are could be replicated other places in terms of communities being able to together move and to do it all as one. I was just curious then in terms of if you could talk a little bit about interaction among some of these other groups and whether people are really banding together. Um, actually, I'm glad you raised that because one of the real significant partnerships that has occurred is with um, Chief Albert and communities in Alaska um, with folks like the leaders of New Talk in Alaska and Kivalina, Alaska. Um, they really formed strong alliances and partnerships and working together to uncover lessons learned. Um, these communities have been going through it for a generation themselves. And they've come across a lot of obstacles and hiccups along the way. And so now what they're looking at is what are the opportunities that we have. Um, obviously, you're working within different local contexts, with different local and state governments. Um, but there's a greater issue and a lot of similarities to be shared. Um, and uh, John Charles um, has worked um, quite closely with local municipality level um, working on some small projects, um, and so working within um, with their local government. Um, however, unfortunately, it seemed too little, too late. And so, you know, the number one choice for communities is to stay. But in this case, they've deemed that really, you know, the in-situ adaptation is no longer viable. Um, and so to keep that community together, that the relocation um, is the best path forward. And based upon what you all said, time is not our friend here. Carol, I just have a question, and thank you for allowing this forum to happen here, especially in the capital, especially where the buzzword of resilience, resilient communities, there's funding opportunities, all that. We know scientifically communities, people, as a community, can be far more resilient than individuals as individual persons. You need those bonds. You need that strong intertie systems coming together. This is an example. And what you folks here in our nation's lawmaking center need to do is put a filter in your mind, in your head as you're working, and see how do the laws we have make resilience, make sustainability illegal. We need to legalize sustainability, we need to legalize resilience. Our rules, our laws are not really set to do that. 
we have all sorts of rights for government and all sorts of rights for individuals. Indigenous peoples understand they not only have unalienable rights, but they have unalienable responsibilities. And that's to their self, their family, their kinship, and to their place, to their planet. So here's an opportunity where, as you're looking over legislation and whatnot, start thinking, is, does this help communities rather than just provide special opportunities for special individuals. Someone pointed out to us yesterday, we did a little session on the side of town. They said, you know, the, the, the Occupy, the 1%, all the consciousness changing. When you look at the planet, human beings, species, we're the 1% of the planet. And we've got the swing vote as to how this is going to turn out for us. So let's not make it more difficult with old mindsets. Let's see if we can bring a new mindset to the changes and to the opportunities we need to build and, and, and help nourish our communities to become resilient. Legalize sustainability. Legalize resilience. Don't make it obstacles. Find ways through those, those, those waters, and find ways that we can, we can actually bring something very positive. Because, again, I grew up in New Jersey. We are now in Union Beach, building houses that look just like the ones that were on. They're up on stilts. People had to do that, because no dunes, that water from Sandy came in, and wiped out good chunks of those communities along the seacoast. It's happened in the wealthiest part of our nation. It's happening in the poorest parts of our nation. We're all going to be affected. My dear friend Ronaldo Duke says, doesn't matter what boat we came over on, we're all in the same boat now. So I appreciate that. Uh, when I look at that picture, it looks like Kick Hadley's. You know? I've been Kick Hadley's for a while. I go fishing there. I have no accident. But let me tell you what the people do there. When Route 12 gets cut and it gets cut in the storm, you know, what they do, the people get together and put it all back. They don't move, they stay there. The kids go to school on the back of the charter boat. The people go to school on the charter boat. The charter boat captains don't make money. And a little while, everything gets back together again. And it's the same as before. Now, they need the federal government to put the dunes back. They need the state to rebuild the bridges. But in a little while, the whole community is back the way it was before. They don't have to move. Now, that's just a comment that I'll make. The woman behind you has a Facing this reality, um, 
And um, it's predicted to be gone within like, the next 10, 15 years. Um, and the thing you need to understand about Shishraf is that within my community, more than half of the population relies on subsistence activities for their livelihood. And so the idea of relocating to a city, which is what a lot of agencies would love for us to do, would be expensive, um, would crumble our culture. It would um, significantly change our identity. Um, and another another thing that people need to understand about the realities in Alaska villages is that our community voted to um, to stay dry, which means we don't allow alcohol in our village. And so you need to understand the socio-cultural impacts of relocation. Um, my nieces and nephews, they live they live in a place where our culture is sacred. And if we move or we relocate individually into cities, it completely changes who, who we are as people. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to bring in my perspective on what's going on in Alaska. Um, and I really appreciate um, Bob bringing up the fact that we need to empower communities, not individuals. We need to empower communities because all of our strength is in our communities. Thank you. Which? Any other questions or comments? Go ahead. Venice, Boris, um, 
um, you know, that there are other fishing communities and are, you know, in places like Grand Isle, that, and they're also, you know, needing to have these conversations and facing some similar issues, um, but because of very unique environment of Ville Jean Charles, where it's really sur- it was surrounded by so much marshland, it's had so much infrastructure um, from the oil and gas companies just to be cut right through it. Um, the intensity of the land loss around Ville Jean Charles is so extreme, and it is a different intensity even than some other parts of coastal Louisiana. But it is happening across all southeast coastal Louisiana, so you go directly south of New Orleans, communities there are facing some of the very same issues. Um, and that's why what Ile Jean Charles is proposing um, can really be used as that exemplar model um, for what other communities are going to be facing as well. It's not just about Ile Jean Charles, um, but they are one of the ones with a plan in place right now. Well, as composing the other thought, I wanted to just say there's a very interesting coincidence. We didn't plan this, but as I understand it, there will be hearings in two days on federal acknowledgement process. And it's one of those federal actions that the community's been involved in for, for decades. And uh, I just find it ironic that a group that moved as a group in the 1830s is still moving as a group, but somehow you don't recognize them as having been a group for that entire period of time. Um, we, we, we need to be able to look at that, find ways to aid all of the communities with whatever opportunities we have, and either legislatively or administratively in the life. So just a real piece of education, not a lot of And Bob, do you want to explain why the federal acknowledgement then should that not open up other avenues of support in terms of the uh, master plan that Chief Albert has been developing? I would presume that that would be right. If you're a federally recognized tribe with a relation, ongoing relationship with the federal government, you can then start talking about, well, how about a land swap? Would you like our island or what's left of it? Or a little bit of uh, solid land that you've got at National Park somewhere, or some other federal agency that's holding on to it. The opportunities for even to get surplus property become a viable alternative for building a new economy for a tribal community. They're, they're not necessarily looking at the next casino in, in, on the water. Uh, they're looking for a viable homeland for the next set of generations. So uh, just, just bear that in mind if that's something that crosses your desk. Uh, you know, but one thing, and I mean, so it does open up opportunities, but until that recognition comes, they can still approach us as a community, right? And so many of the grants that were shown earlier, um, while they may not qualify as a federally recognized tribe, they qualify as a community, um, like any other community in the U.S. can do. And so they can approach this as doing this and applying for things as a community, um, so that's one big approach that they've been taking. And also, um, in relation to what Bob said a bit, it's also about part of the plan is also working to restore what is left 
of the island because this is, you know, as Jared talked about, this is ancestral land. Um, this is their homeland. It's been their homeland where they were forced to, but it's become their new homeland. And so it's also not just, if it, just because it becomes uninhabitable does not mean it's a place to just go away entirely. And so it's also, they are taking actions to try to restore what is left um, so it still ma- it maintains a place that people could have something to go back to, at least for the foreseeable near future, um, and do what they can to restore it, especially while people are still living there. Because um, while you know many have relocated, there are still some families who are still living there today with a number of children, as we saw in the um, film clip. Um, my name is Art Herman, uh, and I'm with Congress from England. I bring up something uh, involving what I said before. The people that I'm talking about in North Carolina, they're different than uh, the Indians. The Indians were indigenous. The North Carolina people, they were pirates. That's, how, that's where North Carolina, the coastal people came from as pirates. And what they did was they went out and <laughs> tracked boats and captured the boats stole all the stuff off the boats. And those are the people that make up, you know, the fishermen now. They're tough people, the ones that are left. And so when the storm hits, first of all, there's a lot more money down there because it's a lot of resource. And so those people, they they don't move. They build. And I'm not saying it's any different than your people, but that's the way it is. That's why I just bring that up. Pirates is an economic development strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they all for a long time. I mean, there's a name of a family down there that are pirates now. Not now, then. Now, now they, they have garages and they work in the cars and they're still pirates. And I think, as you mentioned, that there is a lot of state and federal help that yes. has gone oh, into that. Yes, they get lots of help. So, um, okay, there was a question or comment over here. Hi, uh, my name is Sean Evans, I'm a journalist. And uh, this one's for Bob. You, you proposed a question to us, and you said, um, how do laws make sustainability illegal? And I think you have something specific in mind, and I wonder if you could just let us know what you're thinking. Thank you. Um, yeah, most of their local laws, uh, building codes, all sorts of things. But FEMA, for as an example, as an agency example, has some very you know, uh, well-crafted and understood regulation about rebuilding flood zones and things like that. And we've got to be mindful of those issues. But at the same time, uh, aid that would come to a community that's already had their properties devalued and devastated, and then you get a fraction of what it's worth if you're able to trade it out in some form or other, really handicap the community trying to build it and something like that. Uh, we've run into it with, uh, we're looking at uh, straw buildings in the Great Plains, and uh, a lot of uh, Insurance companies aren't quite sure how to handle that. Uh, they don't have codes, a lot of building codes, and things like that. And we talk about the simply insulation, and you're able to move forward. But we find a lot of what we've done in the past, we've reified the law and code, and 
then it gets in the way of innovation towards the future. So I'd be happy to talk to you offline on other kinds of examples. But wastewater, how do we, what do we handle with wastewater? Every time you flush, you pollute and make a whole lot of fresh water, black water, with every flush. And then you have to treat all of that black water at a very large expense versus if you could find ways of just focusing that into gray and, and moving that separately. It's going to cost us in our infrastructure and our systems because we've designed it in a period of, of, of abundance. We've designed it in a period of, of, of great uh, volumes of water, especially in the Great Plains. We are now moving historically into what's likely to be maybe up to a century of drought. And that's under natural variation. We, when we talk about climate change, we look at the, the drought in the West. We see these century and a half cycles. Wet with little dry spots, little droughts, and long dry periods with little wet spots. The entire settlement of the Great Plains, where their water comes from, Mississippi and over Missouri, that water comes from those headwaters. That water, for the last century and a half, has been relatively abundant, wet. But we're, we know the last 2,000 years, you go back, we've had a century and a half of drought. We've lived the last century and a half, all of the Euro-American settlement of the Northern Great Plains happened during the wet That's what we conceive of as normal. We will get back to normal. We, le we legislate around that. We build codes around that understanding of normal. And any five, six generation rancher will tell you, yeah, it's tough, we get droughts, but we come back to normal. We're heading to the other half of the big normal. And we're not ready for that. We're not ready for that at all. And California is uh, generating a line on that question for water. So we're, we're seeing this all over the country. It's not just in Louisiana. But you look. 7,000 rivers in the heartland of this country end up going through roads and not depositing any land in the Delta, no soil in the Delta. That's what I have. So we've really got to be looking and thinking about the practices we're going to engage in and how we might adjust our sites for this coming century. state of Louisiana. 
Um, and so communities like Ile de Jean Charles um, and others in other um, coastal parishes, um, it's, it's really caught up in litigation and hard to say what will come of it. Um, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. Great. Um, I, uh, I wanted to ask just one final one, although you may have kind of answered it in certain ways, was in terms of telling your story in different venues, what you are in the process of doing, what are the things that you want, that if you're wildly successful, what do you want people to do? What are the action points, say, for the rest of us? What, what, what do you want us to do? What do you want to leave us with in terms of what we should do? Support our effort. That's number one. And whoever we need to talk to to help us out, it would be great. Let me, let me say this. We don't want to move. And we don't have any plans to move, but we have a plan that we have to move. But right now, So this is a process that you can become involved in and learn how it works. So while supporting the community, it's also supportive to the agencies back in return to see you know, what works, what can we do more effectively, efficiently, how can we work with communities in this capacity, and how we can move forward to all the other communities that are going to be facing this issue as well. So please take the, take the message back um, to um, the committees and agencies um, when you leave this room. So that essentially we all have homework to look at what's appropriate in terms of different places that can all then um, help contribute to um, the plan, which can also be a model for all sorts of other communities that are having to grapple with these really um, fundamental, fundamental challenges. 
So I want to thank you all for coming. And I, Julie, JR, Bob, thank you so, so much for helping us lead us through this whole discussion. Um, incredible, incredible story. And I also want to say thank you very much to Rebecca. And do you want to just tell us about if, if people are interested in seeing the whole film, how, how does one go about that? Uh, sure, we are under, um, thank you, we are under reviewed, uh, uh, being considered for PBS broadcast, so that will know probably in the next couple of months, but we will have DPs out to in about a month. It's cancelofthewater.com for information. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you very, very much. So thank I, I just want to add just as part of that homework assignment. Um, we hope that everyone here signed in. And please, before you leave this room, come talk to us and let us know um, the different components that you think that you'd be interested in, that you could support on, and that you'd want to be part of. Um, so if you already have those in your mind, please don't run out of the room and come see us before you leave. That sounds like also think about everything through a sustainability and a resilience lens so that we ask ourselves the questions before anything, before we sort of do anything legislatively so that we solve problems rather than create new ones, right? Carol, I want to thank you for the selection of this room. I just started looking at the photographs on the wall, and they're from the Curtis era. Yes, yes. Who's documenting the vanishing Americans. Uh, they haven't vanished. They've gotten stronger, and they've become more resilient, and they plan on being here for a long time. Let's follow their lead. And go ahead, JR. I want to thank you all for coming and listening to the story. Thank you. Interesting story. Thank you. Well, and, and please do tell Chief Albert how sorry we are that he was not able to join us today. But hopefully, another time. And I just hope that his family is okay. All right. Terrific. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you.